Um, unto us, how many are you thankful that we have made it through uh, 2021? It's been a crazy year, hasn't it? It's been a rough ride, but uh, the Lord has pulled us through. So if you wouldn't mind, open your Bibles to Isaiah 9 and ch- verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. We're going to read these words. Um, this is interesting because we often quote this during this time of year, uh, this particular scripture, but how many people realize the deep significance behind this actual scripture? Very deep. Actually, the first few words give us the whole encapsulate uh, Jesus' life. In the first few words, it's really powerful. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Are you thankful for that? The government will be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. You know, they just sang in that song about the world of peace. How many of you want that world of peace? To see that world of peace? Let's bow our heads. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, it is not by an accident that we are here today. Those viewing online and those here present. Each one, Lord, are being drawn to you. You said in John 12 and verse 32, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Lord, you're drawing us, you're wooing us. And why is that? Because you did something so marvelous for us. We just quoted Isaiah 9, verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Lord, you lay down your life for us. I pray that this message will ring in the hearts as I share the biography of your life on earth. And I just pray each one is touched, Lord, in a special way, that they'll be encouraged not to give up hope, but to hold on to the hope giver, Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am so blessed, uh, of course, uh, we kind of get addicted to these little things, right? How many of us get addicted to cell phones? Um, My phone kind of was out for a day or two, but thankfully I was able to afford more minutes. And I did, and I was asking the Lord, Lord, you're going to have to lead me and design this this actual message, because I don't know what to say. And so I started doing some research, and I thought, Isaiah 9, 6, let me just Google and search that. And I found something interesting online. I don't remember the actual website it was on, but... This is kind of the past of Israel. It's going to show and highlight Israel's past. I just want to read this to you. It's an online article entitled, A Weary World Rejoices. Are you rejoicing this year? Have you been a little weary? I know I've been weary. I've been kind of worn out. A weary world rejoices. That's hard to say. A weary world. It's kind of fast. A weary world rejoices, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And the author of this article, Mark L. Hitchcock, writes these profound words. Ernie Pyle was a Pulitzer Prize-winning American journalist who became a World War II reporter on the front lines in the Pacific Theater. He spent times in the trenches with the troops and was exposed to the worst of the fighting and destruction. You know, war brings a lot of destruction, right? It's unfortunate it happens. And guess what? He was killed by enemy fire near the end of the war in Okinawa. He didn't make it. Shortly before his death, he wrote to a friend, If you have any light, shine it in my direction. God knows that I have run out of light. Many sad souls in our world today can relate to Ernie Pyle. They have run out of light. We're going to share a little bit of story about Israel's past and what they went through while Isaiah was writing this particular passage. Mark goes on to write about the backdrop of Israel's condition at the time of that familiar scripture that we read in Isaiah 9 verse 6. Isaiah 9 is painted 
uh, against a very dark backdrop. The immediate context of this passage is bleak. The year is 732 BC, 10 years before the northern kingdom of Israel is pulverized and plundered by the Assyrian war machine. The Assyrians were flexing their muscles in their near eastern neighborhood. Israel and Judah were scrambling for security and peace. You ever, do you notice that today? Does it seem like we're scrambling for security and peace? Very similar. The Assyrians carried out a scorched earthly policy in military conflict. They were like the original ISIS. Fear in Israel was mounting. Do you see fear, Israel, uh, fear today mounting around the world? People perplexed, confused. Conditions within Israel and Judah were just as dark and dire as those on the outside. Now listen to this. This gets deep. The final verses of Isaiah 8 reveal that in addition to the military threat on the outside, the people were so disconnected from God, they were looking to the dead for wisdom and guidance. Is that not sad? Looking for the dead to wisdom and guidance. Do you think they could find any wisdom after the dead? Wow. They were looking among the dead for, get this, irony, answers to life. Looking to the dead for answers to life. Hmm. The word of the year in Israel in 732 BC was darkness. Spiritual and political darkness hung over the nation. Does that sound familiar to you? Spiritual and political darkness hung over the nation. For Israel, it was doom and gloom. It was one long night without a morning, a time of hopelessness, despair, and darkness for all Israel, but especially Galilee, the northern part of Israel. That's an important point, northern part of Israel, because they would be the first to feel the boot of the enemy. So they're the enemies coming down to the north. A thick darkness had enveloped, enveloped the land with a, like a heavy blanket. Things had become so dire that the people were looking to the domain of darkness for light. Ooh. That's pretty bad, isn't it? That's really dire. Looking to the domain of darkness for light. Sadly, this has a contemporary ring to it for the many of our leaders today. Yikes, that's a, that's a bad thing there. So what's the answer for a re- weary world? For a world that's weary physically, emotionally, spiritually, and politically. What's the answer for every weary man, woman, or child? For such a complex problem, the answer is starkly simple. A baby, that's right, a child. Amazing. Think about this child. So let's unfold the story of this baby, this child. I like to say that God is, he protects the innocent, does he not? He takes care of his own. He protected even Jesus himself. So we're going to open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. We're going to do a little bit of Bible study here. I hope you're a little hungry. We're going to kind of reflect on the life of Christ uh, I was on his earth, while he was on his earth and find out the uh, beauty of this man's life, fully God and fully man. And we're going to expound upon this uh, in great measure through a few points here, but we're going to start in Matthew 2. We're going to pick it up uh, verses 1 through, uh, let's see, 6. And here we find uh, Jesus fulfills prophecy. Several points in Matthew 2 you're going to find he fulfills prophecy. Uh, We're going to pick it up in verse 1 says, Now when Jesus was born in, where was he born at? It's an important point of Judea. In the days of Herod the king, do you think he was a good king? Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. 
Hmm, you think they came with the right intent to worship him? And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Do you think that the king should know? You think they would have wisdom? I mean, you're in leadership of this country. They say, so goes the leadership, so goes the nation, right? And if he doesn't know where the king's going to be born, the king of Israel, how's the rest of the nation supposed to know? Verse 5 says, And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, so these are all his top advisors, For thus it is written by the prophet, here is the uh, prophecy being fulfilled, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a who? A governor that shall rule my people Israel. Do you think that Herod was excited to hear that message? How dare they? I am the king of Israel. I don't want this man to step in my place. I, I rule Israel. He's not going to be the governor of this place. How dare he? Well, guess what? It goes on. They're going to talk about this idea of investigation. They're going to investigate about this Jesus. So verse 7. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Do you think that Herod really wanted to worship this child? Hmm. Verse 9, And when they heard the king, had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star appeared again, which they saw in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Um, a lot of people get this confused. You know, when I was a kid, I used to think, well, the wise men meant baby Jesus in the manger. Actually, a little bit later, is going to tell you um, something interesting. He didn't meet, the, the wise men didn't meet baby Jesus in a the manger. They met him in a different location. Verse 11 says this, verse 10, And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with great, exceeding great joy. They were happy. We're going to get to see this king. Verse 11 says, And when they were come into the house, notice that, into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down. I thought this was interesting because I don't see Joseph referenced in the scripture. Uh, it doesn't really tell us either way if he was there or not, but it says that he came to a house. They came to a house, so it wasn't a manger, was it? It was a house. They fell down and worshipped him, and when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. I find this interesting. These gifts were so pivotal at this time. Do you believe that God knows our needs at the right time? He knows how to provide those needs. We're going to find a little later how much those needs were, how important this was, this gold and frankincense and myrrh. So, yeah, God's going to protect his son. He's going to do something for uh, Jesus and for the family. So in verse 12 says, These wise men, and being warned of God in a dream, they, that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. So he said, hey, come back. Tell me where the kid is. I want to go worship him. And God says, nope, you do not go back to that man. You go back to your home. So God protects Jesus there. And then in verse 13, we see uh, God again protecting Jesus. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to worship him, right? Oh, he wants to destroy him. Man. How is it that somebody would be, have so much anger and hatred to think to kill a baby? That's a sad state of affairs when you get to that point in your life. I want to destroy him. Verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night. He didn't hesitate, did he? He didn't say, well, let me think on it, God. 
I'll uh, consider that maybe in a week or two. Just give me some time. No, he arose quickly and went by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled. Here it is again, number two, prophecy fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. You know, it's interesting. The enemy wants so much. He's so angry that he wants to destroy a child. And we're going to find out how far that goes. Uh, Herod's going to make a death decree. He's going to, I've got to find this child. We've got to eradicate him. We've got to destroy this child. So much hatred and so much anger. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, did they actually mock him? I don't think so. His pride there was exceeding wroth or angry and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Isn't that disgusting to think you have that much hate and venom in your, your veins that you want to destroy children, needless, innocent children for a child? Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah or Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Again, number three, prophecy fulfilled, number three. I think this is interesting because God knew that they would need monies to go to Egypt. They needed finances. And God supplied so they could get down to Egypt. This death decree so they could escape. But they journey somewhere important, uh, this family. We're going to pick it up in verse 19. But when Herod was dead, I guess, uh, could you say praise the Lord he died? (laughs) Praise the Lord he's dead. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard, he gets a little nervous, but when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, so he's basically now king, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of, where did he go? Huh. Do you remember uh, one, once a man says, what good thing can come out of Galilee? Are you thankful that something good came out of Galilee? It was Jesus, right? Verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Wow. Again, there's prophecy number four fulfilled. Turn to the book of Luke. And we'll see the same sentiment. There's a reason why I share this. Luke, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 39 and 40. Luke also has the same account um, to a degree uh, concerning um, their fleeing, but uh, also being in the city of Galilee. So we're seeing that God protects the innocent. He takes care of little babies. Unfortunately, some had to die um, because of the anger of Herod and how satanic that was. But we realize that God has his mark on specific people to preserve them. So this journey to Nazareth that picks up in Luke um, chapter 2, verse 39 and 40. It says, And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, talking about um, the uh, parents here, they returned into Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And this is the uh, terrible thing about how much hatred Satan has. It says in verse 40, And a child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Full of spirit, wisdom, understanding. He was 
beginning to grow into a young, mature young man. And we find this a little bit later here. Um, and I like to entitle this one, Can We Do This Ourselves? Can We Lose Sight of Jesus? Is it easy to do that? Can we take Jesus for granted? Like thinking, well, I'm good. I can handle this on my own now, Jesus. Didn't somebody do that once when they were walking on water? How far did they get them? <laughs> they began to sink, didn't they? Uh, sometimes we begin to sink. But uh, we're going to pick this up now in Luke 2, same chapter. We're going to find now he's a little more grown. He's going to be going on a road trip. And they're going to take a road trip for a specific reason. We're looking at verses 41 through 43. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. How many of you would have liked to have been at that Passover and see what that was like? All these people coming to it together. Verse 42, and when he was how old? 12 years old. Do you remember 12 years old? That's kind of hard for me to remember, but I remember some things. 12 years old. They went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. So they went and did this every year for 12 years. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus, what did he do? Tarried behind in Jerusalem. Uh Uh-oh. He stayed behind. You think he did it uh, just to be disobedient? Eh, I'll just forget my parents. I'll just stay here and hang out. I don't want to go hang out with them. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. They didn't even know. Like, just kept walking, marching back to Jerusalem. But this is what happens. They took Jesus for granted. Can we do that? Take Jesus for granted? Where'd you go, Jesus? Where are you? Uh Uh-oh, can't find you. We're going to find that out here in verse 44. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. So they're pretty far along. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem. And what did they do? They were, sought him out, didn't they? Sometimes we need to seek Jesus out, don't we? We need to be seeking him out. Search for him. He wants to be found if you want to seek him. Jeremiah 29 verse 13 is on my notes. But you shall seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. We should be searching for him. So they looked for him. What would they find him doing? In verse 46, And it came to pass that after three days, that's a long journey, three days, they found him in the temple. So Jesus is now four days alone, right? Uh, Four days alone in the temple. What is he doing? Sitting in the midst of the doctors or the instructors, both hearing them and asking them questions. He's learning. He's inquisitive. I bet you he's probably even teaching them some things too. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. That's incredible. This young man was brilliant. Something happens, though. The parents finally find him in verse 48. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them something powerful. How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? Was he talking about Joseph? Who was he talking about? Oh, Heavenly Father, that's right. I'm always about my... Could you imagine that being 12 years old? Were you at that point? You could say, yeah, I'm about my father's business. I remember getting on bike ramps and skateboard ramps and making little forts and ah, having my fun time, just doing my thing. Never once did I at 12 think about, hmm, maybe I should be doing my father's business. That's pretty impressive. He had a very intelligent mind. We're going to see so in a couple of verses here. Um, So Jesus is now going to return home. So the parents find him. Verse 50, And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. So they're kind of puzzled. What did he mean by father? 
And he, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. She remembered these things. She stored them there. And Jesus, what did he do? Increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Think about that now. Um, turn to Genesis 32 and verse 28. This just kind of made me think of this. Jesus came to be king of Israel, right? Um, verse 28 in Genesis 3, or sorry, Genesis 32. Genesis 32, verse 28. This is the, the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. And remember that Jacob was called a deceiver, right? He was a deceiver. Something happened in verse 28, though. I find this very interesting. And verse 28 says, and he said, this is the angel of the Lord. We know this is Jesus. Jesus is wrestling with Jacob. Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Same kind of language we just saw there back in Luke, right? He had favor with God and man. He prevailed. And now I'm just thinking as we go on into uh, Matthew 4, turn to Matthew 4. We're going to take another slice of Jesus' life. Now he's an adult. But I'm thinking about this as you guys are turning to Matthew 4. How sad it is that people have such a hatred for something so holy, so peaceful, so loving. That he had favor with God and man, but then as he grows into a man, he's tracked down by Pharisees and Sadducees, by Satan and his angels, only bent on to destroy the same man who had favor with God and man. But they want to destroy him. We're going to see something play out here. In Matthew, uh, actually chapter 3, we're going to start in there. We're going to get a backdrop. Do you think that sometimes, before I go there, do you think that sometimes we can get confused in our identity? Do you see that today heavily? Confusion in identity? Um, the enemy loves to kind of throw, I guess, darkness over us. He likes to get us confused, uh, kind of perplexed, uh, agitated. He likes to confuse us of what our true identity is. And we find the same thing happens here in Matthew uh, chapter 3. We'll start there in verse 16. And this is after John the Baptist, of course, you know, baptized Jesus, dipped him in the water, or I should say immersed him in the water, brought him back up. And verse 16 says, And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting upon him. What happens in verse 17? And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who is this voice? God the Father, right? The Father of all creation saying, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. But then Jesus has to do something as he's being baptized. We're going to pick it up now in Matthew 4 and verse 1. It said, then when Jesus was led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, so who led him into the, into the wilderness? The spirit. And what had to happen? He had to be tested, right? He needed to be tested. So verse 2 says, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward in hunger. Do you think he would be hungry after 40 days and 40 nights? Just a little? I think that would cause a little confusion, wouldn't it? Kind of leave you a little delirious, weak. It um, would be hard to, uh, to imagine what that would be like to fast that many days. 
We're going to pick it up now where Satan is going to challenge Jesus' identity. In verse 3, And when the tempter came to him, what did he do? He said, If, if thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Really? What did God just say in verse 17 in the other chapter? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Trying to confuse his identity. Did God really say that I'm his beloved son and I please him? I'm not sure. I'm so confused. I'm really delirious right now. Do you think that happened? You think Jesus got uh, confused? What did he do? He answered in verse 4, but he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He knew what to stand on, didn't he? He knew to stand on the word of God. John 1 says that he is the word, and the word was God, and the word dwelt with God. But we see another uh, test here. In verse 5 says, And the devil taketh him up into a holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, Again, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Do you think Satan tells the complete truth? He likes to mingle truth with error, doesn't he? Jesus says, hmm, all right. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Again thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He knew better than to debate and argue with Satan. I've been uh, prone to do that. Have you ever been prone to want to debate and argue with Satan? You want to do that? <laughs> do you think you can get pretty far with that? Satan knows everything. I mean, he knows not, not everything, but all. He knows a lot of things. So you can't. I was just telling the uh, class, uh, when I first came to the Lord, you know, I thought, in Sabbath school class, I was telling them about how when I first came to the Lord, I thought, oh, yeah, I can take that, you know, red, whatever you want to call him, the devil, Satan on. I could take him on. I thought, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done. You ever done something stupid <laughs> and you really regret it? Um, so I remember push mowing my lawn. We had a pretty good sized lawn. It was about three acres. So I'm push mowing. I just told, I said, God, I know I can, I can handle this. So that later that night, I lay in bed and I felt like the room get cold. You ever felt that before? The room got cold. I could feel the sheets just tighten over um, our bed. I could feel a presence sitting on my wife's legs. And I began to like tremble and get scared. I thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? I said, Lord, help me. I realized that I made a foolish choice to say what I said. <laughs> so be very careful what you say because Satan knows. Verse 7, of course we said, again, Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We find that Satan didn't, I guess, apparently here say, well, if you be the son of God, so he only did it twice. But again, the devil take them up into an exceeding high mountain and show him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. Do you think uh, Satan's kingdom would be glorious? You think it would be a glorious place? Do you think what, he, what he's doing today to this world? Do you see what's going on with the tornadoes we just saw? The uh, California just had, what, three to four feet dumped on them in snow? We saw up in Colorado, I think it was just yesterday, the day prior, they had 100-mile-an-hour winds blowing over semis, toppling trees, and roof, roofs being ripped off. Um, is that the kind of world you'd want to live in? Doesn't sound too fun, does it? And he saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and do what? Worship me. Man, worship me. Wow. That's pretty uh, bold, isn't it? A created being to say to the creator, Hey, why don't you created being, you know, creator, worship me, the created. Wow. Then Jesus saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Wow. 
So the identity, again, being tested. Uh, when I first came to the Lord, I remember my parents took me on a trip to uh, go to um, the Grand Canyon. Ever been in the Grand Canyon before? Amazing place, isn't it? Wow, it's kind of scary when you get down there and you see how far you can fall. But uh, just beautiful, the, uh, the, the striations in the rock and everything. And I remember my parents, pretty much they um, paid for everything, which was really nice. They took us out there. I was just coming, Lord. I was just on fire. And I remembered a little bit of scriptures in my mind. And we were sitting around the campfire. My brother, he, he said something. And when he said something, scripture just came out of my mouth. I don't know. I just popped out. I just said it. And he said, I'm tired of you talking about your Bible and all this. And he just started getting angry. I'm, so I started yelling at him back. I started getting angry. I started kind of cussing him out. And so I walked away angry. My wife can tell you I was cussing. I said, Lord, if this is what it takes to have faith, I want nothing to do with it. I am out the door. I can't do this. I can't fight against my family. I don't want this. And I almost threw my hand, my towel in on my faith because just that little time, just that little bit when somebody came at me, I thought, well, I'm not made for this. I'm out. But the Lord, um, Lord gives you strength, praise the Lord to get you to keep standing up. You know, it says in Proverbs 24 and verse 16, though a righteous man may fall seven times, he keeps getting up again. So praise the Lord for that. And imagine as Jesus is growing old, he's older, he sees his, his, his ministry. Turn with me to Matthew 26. We're going to encapsulate. This is kind of nearing the end of his life. So I'm hoping you're getting kind of a picture of Jesus' life. I know we all know this, but it's a great reminder and why we really do worship this season and who we really worship um, and how important, we is, how important it is that we realize who we worship. Um, because the enemy is trying his hardest right now to deceive the uh, very elect if it's possible. Uh, he's going to do everything he can to throw us off. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36, and we're going to look through 39. And we're going to see something here, his agony. You ever had agony in your life, a pain or a burden or something you've seen in somebody else's life you've ever experienced or expressed like pretty deep agony? Um, I had a lady that called me the other day. Um, she was experiencing agony. She said, I'm all alone. I'm isolated. I have nobody in here. Nobody calls me. Nobody visits. I feel so uh, isolated and alone. I feel I just need somebody. She had agony. She was crying. She couldn't even speak until I kind of spoke to her a little bit. She finally calmed down. But she had this agony, but Jesus experienced agony greater than any of us will ever know. And we're in chapter, verse 36 in Matthew 26. And it says there, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And he and saith unto them, Disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, so James and John, and began to be sorrowful. And what does it say? Very heavy. How would you feel if you had to take on the weight of all the sin of the world? How would that feel to you to take that sin on? What would that be like to experience that? The weight of all of our sin from thousands of years and to have that laid upon you. Verse 38, Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. I just want to die. I just feel like I'm going to die. It's too overwhelming. I can't take it. Verse 39, He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. That heaviness that laid upon him. Can you hear that in the words? Just that heaviness to know what lies ahead. Do we see what's going to happen not too far off? Do we? We can see the darkness looming. 
We saw all these things that are happening in our governments and our, our world, and things are changing rapidly. We're going to lose our freedoms. We can sense it, can't we? We see it's right on the cusp. That heaviness is looming, and Jesus feeling this type of heaviness far greater than we will feel, but knowing that darkness is going to encroach these people. As we talked about earlier in 732 B.C., that this Israel would have such a darkness, they'd be praying to the dead. That's a very dark place to get to. And he realized that. So now we're going to pick it up with verse 42. He went again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. He struggled with that cup, don't you think? He struggled to take that cup. I just, oh, it's so heavy, Lord. I don't know if I can manage this. Please give me the strength. Verse 45. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, This is powerful. Sleep on now and take ye rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of who? How many of us are sinners? We're all sinned, right? And fall short of the glory of God. Wow. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Man, let that soak in. Verse 46. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand and doth betray me. Wow. Again, thinking about this little child that God protected, innocent, growing up, he had stature with man with God. And now man thinks, I want to destroy this child. I want to kill him. Now he's a man. Wants to kill him. We got to get rid of this man. He needs to be destroyed. We're going to see that here in a little bit. Turn to John chapter 18. His own people betrayed him. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted of grief. And his own even knew him not. Um, John 19. We're going to see the uh, end of his earthly story kind of come to a close here. Um, What a powerful testimony of God's love to man, right? To do something so amazing, to send his son in this world, to uh, lay down his life literally for each and every one of us, that we can have eternal life with him. John 19, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6. And this is going to be heavy. I hope you can see this. I want to share this with you. And there's a reason why I, I put this message together. We did a Bible study with a young lady last Sabbath uh, evening. And I'll, I'll share with you some of that here in a bit. But uh, she just, her eyes were open to something that maybe some of us haven't seen before. Um, verse 1 says, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus, and what did he do? Scourged him. Do you understand the impact of that? They took these things called cat of nine tails, which had little claws, they would literally lacerate his back and it would rip him open and blood would gush out, ripping his flesh. That's a hard thing to grasp, isn't it? Again, I'm seeing just this little picture of this little baby in a manger and now he's a man and they're just ripping his flesh off his back. It says in verse 2, And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Man, you imagine it. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, he's talking to the Jewish people, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. There's no fault in this man. Why have you brought him to me? Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto him, Behold the man. When the chief priest therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. 
Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. There's two times he said that. No fault in him. Can you imagine? These are his own people. These are the same people that he probably healed some of their family members whole. Crucify him, crucify him. That's powerful. Jump down to verse 14. And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, now he doesn't say, behold the man. Look what he says. Behold your king. But they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto him, them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him, therefore, unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. Wow. Man, to think that your own people wanted nothing to do with you. And you did everything you could to show them your love, that you healed even their children, their loved ones, their family. Now we're going to be jumping down to verse 28. This is the final moment of Jesus' life on earth uh, as we know it. Well, there's more after that, but in this capacity. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was, a, was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, or bitter herb, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Wow. Gave up the ghost. His heart was torn, realizing that his own people and those he came in contact with, he was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with our grief. He knew what we are going through. He knows. But he wanted so much to heal them. He wanted to heal their brokenness, yet they didn't want to be healed. they much rather do it their own way. Have you ever heard of anybody doing that, trying to heal themselves? Anybody familiar with that? But it's right there for your taking. He's just asking you to come. We're going to see another side of this story now. While this was happening, we're going to see behind the curtain in the sanctuary. So turn to Matthew chapter 27. And I'm sharing this for a big reason, and I hope you'll see this. It's really powerful. Matthew 27, we're going to be looking at verses 50 through 51. This is kind of behind the scenes of what's going on inside the sanctuary. And you're all there. I hear some pages. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, what did he do? yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Even the earth mourned the death of its creator. That's a powerful thought. And this veil was so thickly woven, it could not be ripped by man's hands, but some, somehow it was ripped, it was torn. And as that high priest was about to slaughter that lamb, for the Passover, he literally drops the knife as he sees this veil being torn before him. He's like, can't believe it. And it's interesting because you think uh, back in Jeremiah's day, the uh, Ark of the Covenant was missing. It was stolen. They never found it. So that veil was there, but there was nothing behind it. But guess what? They had something greater than that Ark with them. Something they put to the cross. It was Jesus. Jesus was that Ark. Jesus was everything embodied in that Ark. 
What a sad state. So the veil was torn in two. Turn to Hebrews 9. Do you believe that there is power in the blood? Do you want that blood covering you? Oh, Hebrews 9, verses 14 through 16. There is truly power in the blood. Thank you, Jesus, for sharing, shedding that blood for us, right? Verse 14. I'm hoping I could paint you a picture here in a minute. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. Praise the Lord, right? New Testament. Guess what? That means we don't have to take lambs every year and slaughter them for our sin. It's done. Could you imagine that? Every day, daily, taking a... I mean, how many times you sin a day? I mean, you can't probably count how many times you sin a day, right? There's things that we do. But every day, you've got to take a lamb. You've got to slaughter it every day. And I imagine as a, as a human being, you have compassion even on God's creation, like his beasts, right? You would think, I've got to take this innocent little lamb for my sin, and it's got to be slaughtered. Oh, man, can I do this? So, he was in the New Testament. That is by means of death. This is verse 15. For the redemption of the transgressions or violations of the law that we were under the first testament, they couldn't fulfill it. They just couldn't. They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Are you thankful for that eternal inheritance? Do you all want that eternal inheritance? Verse 16. For where a testament or a covenant is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So Jesus had to die for us so we could have that testament. That's a really powerful thought, sobering. Now turn just another chapter behind to chapter 10. And this is where I hope you see the imagery here. Chapter 10, verse 19. Remember that veil was torn in in the sanctuary. Um, We're going to find out there's another veil it says in verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter in the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, we can enter in. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated or set apart for us through the veil. That is to say what? So it really was the veil signifying. That veil is flesh, was representing his flesh, right? Hmm. Very Interesting. So we're talking again about the sanctuary language, this veil that was before the most holy place. Do you remember something that the high priest or the priest, anointed priest would do? Uh, When they came in the holy place, they would do something. They would take that blood of the goat or the sheep or whatever it was, or the bullock, and they would do something. Turn to uh, Leviticus 4. Hmm. Well, Lord, hopefully we'll see this picture um, as the young lady did last Sabbath. It was really powerful. And um, just as I began doing this sermon, just seeing the picture of the, the life of Jesus on the earth and realizing just the, the sheer hatred that somebody would have to destroy a human being, that just rips my soul. Uh, I just I can't fathom destroying somebody because of your hatred or anger. But we're going to be looking in Leviticus 4, verses 4 through 6. And these are two different types of sin offerings they would do. Uh, One was for ignorance, which I believe this is talking about the uh, priest. Uh, Sometimes the priest would do something in ignorance, so they had to do a sacrifice for that to cover his sin. So we're going to pick it up in verse 4. And this is the ignorance uh, or sin offering. 
Verse 4 says, And he shall bring the bullock unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord, and shall lay his hand upon the bullock's head, and kill the bullock before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed, notice that he is anointed, he has to be holy and consecrated, shall take of the bullock's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of the congregation. So he's pressing now into the sanctuary. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the, what is that? Veil of the sanctuary. So he's taking his finger, he's taking that blood, and he's putting it on the veil. So kind of get that imagery in your mind. And we're going to look now in verses 13 through 17. Again, this is the idea of a sin offering. This is now for the entire congregation. It says in verse 13, And if the whole congregation of Israel sin through ignorance, and the thing be hid from the eyes of the assembly, and they have done somewhat against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which should not be done and are guilty, how many of us are guilty of doing things we shouldn't? When the sin which they have sinned against it is known, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin and bring him before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock before the Lord, and the bullock shall be killed before the Lord. And the priest that is anointed shall bring of the bullock's blood to the tabernacle of the congregation. And what will the priest do? And the priest shall dip his finger in some of the blood and sprinkle it how many times? Seven times before the Lord, even before the veil. Seven times. You remember what seven represents in the Bible? Completion, right? It's complete. But he does that again, seven times with the blood. Seven times. In verse 20, And he shall do with the bullock as he did with the bullock for a sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for them atonement for them and it shall be forgiven them are you thankful for the atonement of christ are you thankful that he can forgive you of all the junk that you've done what i want to share with you is this concept remember we talked about jesus being whipped or flogged and as he was being whipped with those cat of nine tails flesh was being ripped being ripped blood was gushing out can you see the imagery in the sanctuaries are taking the blood on the veil we just read in uh, Hebrews 10 and verse 20, right? That his flesh was the veil. When he was being ripped open, that blood gushing out, can you see that? His flesh was the veil for our sins. Wow. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I think that's probably one of the shortest statements of 33 years of somebody's life, right there in just, what, six, seven words? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Very thankful, though, it says that the government shall be upon his shoulders, right? That's an amazing thing that we have a governor who, who has such compassion on us that he will come back. Isaiah's record, or Isaiah records these words in Isaiah 9, verse 6. To bring us hope and peace in a time of moral, physical, emotional, mental, social, and spiritual darkness. Do we see that today? Do we see that? How many people? Um, I just read something. This is astonishing. Um, they said an article, it's the Mental Health Association. They said from last year to this year, they've seen an increase of mental health. 1.5 million cases have increased. That's an increase of 1.5 million cases. The number of depression and, uh, what is it called, um, suicidal ideation? It's through the roof of the young people. A lot of mental health challenges. A lot of brokenness. A lot of hurting. 
we're really seeing is spiritual darkness. He concludes his words of encouragement with this in Isaiah 9, chapter 7. I am so thankful for this verse. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David, upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever. Listen to this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Do you think God is good on his word? Do you think he'll do what he said he will do? Do you think he's going to come back for you? <laughs> he will. Do you believe he's getting ready to come soon? We see the signs, don't we? I mean, it's hard to ignore. I mean, it's right in our face every day. If you've got YouTube or if you've got anything, you can watch all the catastrophes um, that are going on. You can see all the military. You can see all the stuff happening so quickly. The pushing of certain laws in our world. This is crazy. I want to read a couple things from you out of Steps to Christ, page 15. The price paid for our redemption, the infinite sacrifice of our Heavenly Father in giving His Son to die for us should give us exalted conceptions of what we might become through Christ. Did you hear that? What can you become through Christ? What will you become? As the inspired Apostle John beheld the height, the depth, the breadth, of the Father's love toward the perishing race, he was filled with adoration and reverence, and failing to find suitable language in which to express the greatness and tenderness of this love, he called upon the world to behold it. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. How many of you want to be sons and daughters of God? (laughs) What a value that places upon man, Through transgression, the sons of man become subjects of Satan. Through faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, the sons of Adam may become the sons of God. Praise the Lord. By assuming human nature, Christ elevates humanity. Fallen men are placed where, through connection with Christ, they may indeed become worthy of the name sons of God. Isn't that beautiful? Such love is without parallel. Children of the heavenly king, precious promise, Theme for the most profound meditation, the matchless love of God for a world that did not love him. The thought has a subduing power upon the soul and brings the mind into captivity to the will of God. The more we study the divine character in the light of the cross, the more we see mercy, tenderness, and forgiveness blended with equity and justice. Think about that justice. Oh, man. Justice crying out. And the more clearly we discern innumerable evidences of a love that is infinite and tender pity, surpassing a mother's yearning sympathy for her wayward child. You know, when we are in um, pastoral worship, we do uh, every morning, Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, we have a little uh, pastoral worship with a devotional book called Noble Character. And we just did this one a couple of days ago, and it really spoke to me. And I thought, man, I need to end this sermon with this one. It's taken from The Great Controversy, page 647. That's an amazing book. If you have not read it, I encourage you to do so because it'll really show you where we're at right now. But this is out of page 467. I love this. This is such a beautiful scene. With unutterable love, Jesus welcomes his faithful ones to the joy of their Lord. The Savior's joy is in seeing in the kingdom of glory the souls that have been saved by his agony and humiliation. And the redeemed will be sharers in his joy. Can you say, praise the Lord? As they behold among the blessed those who have been won 
to Christ through their prayers, their labors, and their loving sacrifice. As they gather about the great white throne, gladness unspeakable will fill their hearts when they behold those whom they have won for Christ. How many of you want to win souls for Christ? Mm. And they see that one has gained others and these still others all brought into a haven of rest. Man, think of that haven of rest. There to lay their crowns at Jesus' feet and praise him through the endless cycles of eternity. Wow. Endless cycles of eternity. As the ransomed ones are welcomed to the city of God, there rings out upon the air an exalted cry of adoration. The two Adams are about to meet. Can you imagine that picture? Jesus, the last Adam, and Adam the first, meeting together. The Son of God is standing with outstretched arms to receive the Father of our race. The being whom he created, who sinned against his maker, and for whose sin the marks of the crucifixion are borne upon the Savior's form. As Adam discerns the prince of the cruel nails, he didn't get to see it, remember? He wasn't here when it happened. He does not fall upon the bosom of his Lord, but in humiliation casts himself at his feet, crying, Worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Tenderly, the Savior lifts him up and bids him look once more upon the Eden home from which he has so long been exiled. Wow, isn't that beautiful? Brothers and sisters, we are about ready to see that kingdom, that Eden. Jesus will lift up every one of us. I guess if the uh, praise team wants to come out. I just want to ask you guys a question. Hmm. Do you want to be under this new government of peace and justice that shall never end? Is it your desire to cast yourself at Jesus' feet and lay your crown down and exclaim like our ancestral earthly father, worthy, worthy is a lamb that was slain? Do you want to see that great white throne? And see others that you have brought to his haven of rest? I'm reminded, um, before we sing this song, Joyful, Joyful, um, years ago when I was just coming to the Lord, God gave me some visions and dreams. And in one of those dreams, I saw something miraculous. Uh, It was so beautiful. It was this giant white misty pillar, giant white pillar. went all the way up. I couldn't even see it. It went so high. But along that white pillar, I saw men and women in white robes, various colors of skin marching around that white. It was just so beautiful, these various skin tones all marching around that white pillar. It was so beautiful. It was so peaceful and it was so calm. I only pray that we can all make it there. But I just ask that you will stand with us as we sing this song, Joyful, Joyful, which is number 12 if you're looking in the hymnal. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee.
teach us how to love each other. Isn't that important? Especially this time of year. Uh, so many are hurting. We need to reach out and love one another. So let's bow our heads. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we have seen, Lord, the spans of your life on this earth. We realize, Lord, how much hatred Satan and his foes have to those you've called, Lord, out of your darkness into your marvelous light. Each one of us, Lord, represent a little piece of heaven. A little do we realize the power that has been given to us through your Son. Matthew 28, verse 18 says that all power is given to you in heaven and earth. We have all power, Lord. The enemy wants to crush, to subdue, to darken. But you can lift us in this time, Lord. Lift us up that we may be able to glorify and honor you, to show you to the world around. And that, Lord, we will be able to love those as you loved us. We ask for each one here today, Lord, hearing the sound of my voice, that, Lord, you will go strengthen their faith, encourage them, that, Lord, we are soon to see our risen Savior return. You promised, Lord, you went to be, build mansions for us, prepare them for us, that you will come back for us and you're going to take us to be with you where you are. Lord, we are waiting. We are waiting. Help us to be ready for when you come. We ask a blessing on each one here today. And as we go out this next week, and especially for Christmas, and for the new year to come, Lord, help us to share the story of Jesus. We thank you, Lord. We ask all these things now in the precious, holy, and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.